There are some songs as a writer that you write, and there are other songs that you just sort of write down. They come through you, and, they, and that was definitely the case for this song, so I can speak with it with a certain amount of uh, distance. This came to me totally as a gift. Uh, five minutes, bam, it was there, and some of the most remarkable things that have happened to me in my life have happened to me because of this song. Probably the most remarkable thing, though, that's happened to me is happened a couple years ago when I was at a little festival in Denmark, a little town called Turnder. And every time I played, there was this little bevy of very old, and we're talking old, uh, German men who had come across the border and showed up at my shows, and they usually came in late, came trotting up the aisle, and there usually wasn't a seat left. So they just stood there at the edge of the stage and watched me, and without expression, turned around, left when I was done. At the last set, and I'm watching these guys turn around to leave as I finish my last song, and I'm thinking, who are these guys? So I sat down my auto harp or whatever I was playing, jumped off the edge of the stage and ran up the aisle and caught the last guy. And I said, you guys have been really sweet showing up all these places, but what's the deal? And the guy said, well, we're here because, because of that song. I said, what song? I said, well, you know that song, the one that's on the radio. That's how we heard about you and about this festival. He said, because all our lives, our families, our friends, have told us we were crazy. Couldn't possibly have happened to us. But then we heard your song on the radio and we said, see? See? Because we were there. And they were there 75 years ago, this last Christmas Eve, when... Uh, the events that this song commemorates happened. Oh, my name is Francis Tolliver. I come from Liverpool. Two years ago the war was waiting for me after school. From Belgium and to Flanders, to Germany to here, I fought for king and country I loved dear. It was Christmas in the trenches, where the frost so bitter hung The frozen fields of France Were still no Christmas songs were sung Our families back in England Were toasting us that day Their brave and glorious lads so far away Well, I was lying with my messmates On the cold and rocky ground When across the lines of battle Came a most peculiar sound Says I now listen up me boys Each soldier strained to hear As one young German voice Sang out so clear He's singing bloody well you know My partner says to me Soon one by one each German voice Joined in in harmony The cannons rested silent And the gas clouds rolled no more as Christmas brought us respite from the war Well, as soon as they were finished And a reverent pause was spent God rest ye merry gentlemen Struck up some lads from Kent Oh, the next they sang was stealing not Tis silent night, says I And in two tongues one song filled up that sky Someone coming towards us The frontline sentry cried All sights were fixed on one lone figure 
trudging from their side It's Drew's flag like a Christmas star Shone on that plain so bright As he bravely strode unarmed into the night Soon one by one on either side Walked into no man's land With neither gun nor bayonet We met there hand to hand We shared some secret brandy and we wished each other well And in a flare-lit soccer game we gave them hell We traded chocolates, cigarettes and photographs from home These sons and fathers far away from families of their own Young Sanders played his squeeze box and they had a violin This curious And unlikely band of men Soon daylight stole upon us France was France once more With sad farewells we each began To settle back to war But the question haunted every heart That beat that wondrous night Whose family have I fixed within my sights? It was Christmas in the trenches Where the frost so bitter hung Frozen fields of France were warmed As songs of peace were sung The walls they'd kept between us To exact the work of war Had been crumbled And we're gone forevermore Oh, my name is Francis Tolliver In Liverpool I dwell Each Christmas comes since World War I I've learned his lessons well That the ones who call the shots Won't be among the dead and lame And on each end of the rifle We're the same Hello everyone, it's Here We Stand. I'm your host, Kevin Annett. Eagle Strong Voice is December 17th. And I tell you, folks, that song always gets to me, Christmas in the Trenches, because I wouldn't be sitting here with you unless that event hadn't occurred, because it's our family story as well. My grandfather, Ross Annett, as part of the 44th Canadian Battalion, took part in that fraternization several times, not only in 1915 and 16, but other times throughout the war. They would go out and meet the Germans in no man's land and hang out and talk, play soccer, get drunk together. And often Grandpa said to me, as he recounted the story to me as a boy in Edmonton, he said they often made agreements with the Germans not to start shooting again, not, or if they had to shoot, to shoot high and wide so they wouldn't hit each other. In other words, revolt was spreading all the time against the war along the line. And as a matter of fact, he said that Grandpa told me that units often had to be brought in to replace the, the fraternizing units so that the butchering could carry on. And to me, it's an example of that miracle of love and action. And today we're going to talk about that leading into the Christmas season. 
uh, a much more subversive season than we realize. Because let me finish that story about Grandpa in World War One. The miracle didn't stop there. About a month after the first time Grandpa fraternized, it was after the Christmas of 1915 in, in France, Grandpa was out on a trench raid with his fellow Canadian troops, and he got shot in the in the hip, and he fell, passed out and fell into a shell hole. He probably would have died out there, but he woke up, and he was in a Canadian field army hospital. And he said, like, how the hell did I get here? Well, it turns out a German soldier had found him and brought him in and surrendered to the Canadians to do that, but he saved Grandpa's life. And I often wondered, was that one of the guys he fraternized with? Because as we hear in the song today, the walls they kept between us to exact the works of war had been crumbled and were gone forevermore. And that happened a lot during the war. It happens in every war. It's undoubtedly happening right now in the Ukraine. Once soldiers take power into their own hands and end the conflict themselves, and I think that can be applied to the war between all of us going on at all times, not just in a battlefield, but all over. Because when soldiers take power into their hands, and when we, when we all do, that always sparks revolutions. It happened when the army revolted in Russia in 1917. It happened in Germany in 1918. And across Europe during those two years, most of the monarchies of Europe fell and were replaced by republics because the soldiers went on strike. When soldiers defy their officers and stop shooting, wars end, especially at Christmas, and regimes collapse. And the same thing happens whenever we all stop obeying orders and to take power into our own hands. But to do that, we have to first reclaim and own our own thoughts and not parrot the thoughts of the so-called rulers. Because, as John McCutcheon ended the song, the ones who call the shots won't be among the dead and lame, and on each end of the rifle, we're the same. Well, it wasn't an accident that Grandpa was saved by a German soldier because that love and action breached all the barriers. And it taught me at a really young age, sitting there in Edmonton, it taught me that Christmas was a lot more than we're fed to believe all the time. There's a revolutionary spirit in there held captive by religion, but it's always struggling to burst free and free humanity from the blood-soaked powers of the world. Well, today, um, I want to remind us of this very important lesson that we have to choose what power we're going to serve. And we start by choosing in our own hearts, reclaiming our thoughts. And the words of a, a homeless guy named Doug I knew in Toronto in the 1990s, he said, I'm out here because I had to stop being a prisoner in somebody else's mind. And once you do that, once you're, you're not thinking the thoughts of somebody else anymore, and you, you start turning the tables on the system and you turn it upside down. And that's the theme of the show today, a world turned upside down. The real message of Christmas. And let me talk about that date for a minute. Christmas, December 25th. That, in fact, was the festival of Saturnalia in Rome. And you say, well, what is Saturnalia? Well, I'll tell you. It's when the ancient Romans turned everything upside down. Because on that day of December 25th, the rich slave owners became the servants of their slaves. And the slaves were dressed up in wealthy robes and became master, unfortunately, just for the day. And many of those slaves, of course, were members of an illegal cult known as Christianity. And so it was, it was likely no wonder at all that Christians chose that day of Saturnalia as the mythological moment when Jesus was born, the guy who made the last first and the first last, who said, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. A world, in other words, turned upside down. That remains the radical seed of Christ, the vagrant revolutionary. His way was never meant to be religion. It's a revolution starting in every human heart, which abolishes all the divisions of rich and poor, 
All the armies crumble along with the weapons of war, and that's a fundamental threat to the status quo and to every elite everywhere. Well, an upside-down world is welcomed, of course, by people on the bottom, but not with those with security in the system. And so I say to everybody now, like, where in that battle do you stand? Are you outraged? And this is the thing. You've got to really be outraged and nauseated by everything going around, around you and say, look, I don't have any option. I am through with being part of this blood-soaked mess. I'm incapable of living within it. That's the spirit that has to animate us for us to take the next step and do like those soldiers did. It's a question that eternity poses to each one of us. And when Jesus actually said, I come not to bring peace, but division, that's what love and action does. It separates families. It separates us. As a lot of you know, when you take a stand for the truth, all of your family and friends hightail it. But a new family comes forward. Love always divides and separates, for it requires that we have to make a choice. Where do you stand? Well, it's a relevant uh, topic for today, and today on the show what I'm going to do is do a a few reflections. One on the so-called birth narrative of Jesus from Matthew chapter 2, where Jesus at his birth is a threat to the state. King Herod discovers that somebody has been born who might usurp his throne, so he kills all the firstborn males everywhere in Judea. Right at the very beginning, Jesus was challenging the power that be just by being who he was and what he represented. And that attack on all of us uh, continues. And December 24th, of course, the the anniversary of the murder of a little girl that prompted our entire movement to expose genocide in Canada over 25 years ago. The murder of little Maisie Shaw by Principal Alfred Caldwell at the United Church Residential School in Port Alberni. And the little girl who witnessed that, Harriet Nahani, who with me began our movement at a tribunal in 1998 in Vancouver, Harriet Nahani murdered herself in 2007 by the same forces that killed Maisie Shaw. And so that's part of what we remember that, and we're going to remember that next Sunday, actually, December 24th. We'll be going into United Churches all over the country and reminding their people that they're part of a blood-soaked institution that's been lawfully disestablished under the law, that Native elders and survivors across Canada have banned from their territories, along with the Catholic and Anglican Church. And they're going to remind people that you put money in that collection plate, you're committing enough crime under international law. This church is banished. We have the legal right to reclaim it. You can follow all of those postings, murderbydecree.com, under ITCCS updates, and... Uh, Stay tuned for more information next week about that. If you want to be part of that witness, write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. And, you know, Christmas for me is not simply about that story about what happened to Grandpa, but a lot of my own losses in life tend to happen at Christmas. Just before I was fired by the church at Christmas, um, the losing of my children at Christmas a year later, the death of people friends of mine over Christmas. The system tends to strike at us at those vulnerable moments, kind of our Pearl Harbor moments in December when we're vulnerable for that. But there's something else that happened at Christmas, and I just want to share this. It was uh, just before thing the boot came down on my ministry in Port Alberni when I began to give a platform for Native people in my church. One of the guys who was there, uh, a man called Mark Angus, came to me, and he said these words, Um, which I'll never forget. Mark, just before he died, said to me, I don't have much time left. That's why we have to talk, Kev. 
I just can't stay in this world anymore. It doesn't matter if you try talking me out of leaving. They're going to take me out because I know a lot of what goes on to the children in this valley. But that doesn't matter. I just don't want you worrying about me, Kev, because I know I'm going to be okay. It's you I worry about. You're the one in real danger here because the thing that's hiding in this church hates what you're doing. You're pulling back its mask, and it hates you for it, and it won't stop until you're dead. It's hiding right inside our own church, and people don't even see it. And you're the one who's been sent to expose it. It hates you because of that, and it wants you dead, because it knows you'll never stop, even when you lose everything and everyone in your life. Kev, whatever you do, you can't ever stop. That's why you were sent here, to show what this horrible thing is, and how it's hiding here in these fake churches, and how people have to leave these churches and go back to God. And the only thing that will ever protect you from now on is God. You won't have anything or anyone else on your side. And Mark Angus's words, he died a week later, found murdered in his hotel room. But his words were one of the most prophetic ever said to me, because they were all borne out in practice. That this battle we're engaged in is not simply against flesh and blood, but against the animating power. What the native people called the two-headed serpent from the east. A two-headed nature of our culture where we believe we're kind, loving people, and yet at the same time we're part of an earth-killing and child-killing machine. We don't understand our two-hearted and two-headed nature. But people like Mark and my witness and Harriet's witness and others, let us look in the mirror at this warfare going on within each of us. And so when we talk about war, that's what we're really talking about, the inner war the struggle to break our souls free from this complicity, this Babylonian captivity of our people by this murderous genocidal machine that talks Christianity and murders at the same time. And so that's, to me, the meaning of Christmas. And uh, I hope that the stuff you hear today will help inspire you to look in the mirror and see what you're part of and to help break away. The, the decision becomes one first within our own hearts and minds, then we're incapable of living alongside and within this sick system anymore. And you join with people like me and others in our movement to step out of it spiritually, but also politically and personally within the Republic of Canada, within the movement all over the world that's growing like a huge storm now, as it does in times of war. The alternative is building everywhere in the world, but first we have to have the courage to take that step personally. And that's the purpose of this show. And it has been for the last nine years that we've been on the air, as has the Republic of Canada, formed in the same month of January 2015 as this program, to hold up an alternative, as we must now, before our people go under for good. Now, the rest of the show today, we're going to, um, like I say, go into a reflection on what that birth narrative of Jesus really meant. And also the latter part of the show, knowing the nature of our enemy, the thing in Rome, the so-called Church of Rome, which was the origin of a lot of the genocidal system, the nature of the Catholic Church, and how we can bring it down. It's also embodied in a book I wrote called Dethroning a Rogue Power, which you can see on Amazon, along with all my other books, just put in the word name Kevin Annett. Dethroning a Rogue Power, Why the Vatican Must Be Denied Membership and Presence at the United Nation and in Every Country in the World. And... Also, of course, murderbydecree.com, republicofcanata.org. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll probably be running reruns along these themes because next Sunday, of course, uh, we'll be engaged in these direct actions at churches. And uh, New Year's, uh, I'm going to also be doing things that you'll be hearing about, but we'll definitely be back live first Sunday in January 2024. 
So I say to all of you now, listen, learn, spread the word, post the show, contact us for a public national council at protonmail.com. Most importantly, make the choice within yourself and carry it on. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you. Hi, everyone. Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice, back again. I'm reading to you today a reflection I wrote leading up to Christmas during this Advent season. It's from a series entitled God's Revolution, a radical reading of scripture for refugees from religion. And today I'm going to be reading the so-called birth narrative of Jesus, Matthew chapter 2. And the quote being, Then Herod set out in his wrath and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and its region who were two years old and younger, relying on the knowledge of the wise men. And from every hilltop came the call to mourn and weep inconsolably, for the mothers of the dead cannot be comforted. And I think this is especially appropriate at this time of year, leading up to December 24th, the anniversary of the murder of another little girl at Christmas, Maisie Shaw, at the O'Burney Death Camp, at the hands of Principal Alfred Caldwell of the United Church, and the young girl who witnessed it, Harriet Nahani, who later as an old woman was murdered for what she knew. First came the rumor, and then the slaughter. Three wise guys heard that a rival to the king had been born. Fearing civil war and anarchy, the learned trio dutifully reported the news to Herod, and then the child killer began. Being a state-sanctioned slaughter, that particular genocide wasn't considered a crime. On the contrary, the massacre of every male infant in Judea was an official lawful act ordered by King Herod. All the babies had to die, and morality took a backseat to the needs of power. Well, some things never change. There's nothing unusual about this blood-soaked scenario. It's how society stays safe and stable. It's how rulers remain on their thrones, from kings to popes to prime ministers and CEOs. Political expediency comes first, and humanity comes second, or last. And then after the slaughter, the killers babble about healing and reconciliation. Kill, rinse, repeat. Ultimately, none of us have enough of a problem with this arrangement to stop it, since we routinely let it happen, and we fund it. Like genocide, child killing by church and state is habitual, and as old as humanity itself, for who's more expendable than children? Consider the little charred bones in the sacrificial ovens of Moloch, or of any Christian Indian residential school for the answer. Take Maisie Shaw, for example. She was a young girl who was also murdered at Christmas in the year 1946 at the United Church's Albernian internment camp, inaccurately called an Indian residential school. Like the slaughtered children of Judea, Maisie Shaw was killed by an official order and by someone who got away with it, Alfred Caldwell, because he was protected by the state. Multiply Maisie by 60,000 times and you'll see how officially sanctioned child killing is as normal and legal in Canada today as it was two millennia ago. And yet we are told by today's Bible reading that this particular case of child murder in Judea so long ago was was unusual and of more significance than your standard imperial atrocity. Why? Well, because the target in the state's crosshairs was Jesus, who, after all, was more important than your average peasant or indigenous child. He was the son of the supreme ruler of the universe. Well, there you have it, the implicit message of Christianity which is that most babies, like most people, are expendable, but some aren't. Who? The ones with connections, like Jesus. 
The truth, of course, is very different. Jesus Yeshua was no different than any other child born under the gun to a single mother in poverty. He was just one of those who survived, and so he seemed special. But as he so often pointed out in most of the Gospels, he wasn't the issue. Something called the kingdom of heaven was. Why do you call me perfect? Jesus asked his buddies. No one is perfect but God. So much for religion. I remember the first time I held the bone of an Indian residential school child in my hand. It was October 6, 2011, at the former Mohawk Anglican camp in Brantford, Ontario. Standing next to me was Geronimo Henry, who, when he was younger, had buried other children on that spot. He said to me, They liked raping and torturing us in the basement on Sunday mornings. Upstairs they were praying and singing their hymns. Downstairs they were killing kids. I doubt if any of the Christian pew-sitters who hear the slaughter of the innocent story one of these Sundays will make a connection between it and the children's blood on their own hands. The once-a-week happy hour in church is designed to smother that association and muffle the terrible noises coming from the basement. Fortunately, something more than religious expediency is at work, and that is the power of lamentation, which is an uncontrollable blast from the heart of God's pain. The blood of the innocents cries out through church doors and closed hearts and every locked door, and it does so through the outraged cries of the survivors. As the gospel says, the mothers of the dead cannot be comforted. They cannot be comforted by all the crocodile tear apologies by the church and state killers, or by the reconciliation babble, or the blood money payoffs of the fake government inquiries, because there is no moral or legal statute of limitation on murder, and no way to politely manage the cries of shattered hearts, which are like trumpet blasts crumbling the walls of officialdom. We're told in scripture that the killers of children stand guilty and convicted by the fact of their crime and they will face judgment, even if they be kings and popes. But, of course, that's not what happens in the real world. When the killers of children are the ones still in power, they are never guilty of anything, and they don't even have to absolve themselves of child murder, because, guess what? It's not a crime. It's completely legal. Justice is a fiction in the face of institutionalized slaughter. Just look around. Well, that said, today's Gospel reading is actually a quite a remarkably accurate depiction of how things operate in the real politic world of power, then and now, especially when it comes to child killing. I've experienced that blood effect in my own life for a long time, and in the lives of my fallen friends. And today's reading about the events around Jesus' alleged Bethlehem birth is like a mirror that reflects our lives. That story is a sort of instruction manual on how targeted people survive state terror, and how the witnesses to a crime endure by keeping alive its memory. In that regard, it's quite amazing and instructive that even at his birth, Jesus caused hysteria among rulers and posed a threat to established authority, which made even his closest friends love him from a distance. The same is true for any of us who speak the truth about our homegrown group crime. Like any truth-teller, Jesus became a refugee from state terror from the start and a wanderer in poverty and exile. And he stayed that way to the day of his judicial murder by the Romans. So it's no accident that Jesus has always been a symbol and an inspiration to just souls everywhere. For his life and death as the permanent outsider mirrors our own experience as targeted people. Despite his lofty religious tone, the Bible is filled with a common sense and ironic understanding of the foibles of rulers and their clumsy plans. 
We read that when King Herod learns about the newborn child who might overthrow his kingdom, he cons three not-so-wise men into being his agents to hunt down the little usurper by saying, I want to worship this newborn Messiah too. Like obtuse academics on a royal commission, the trio of wise guys believe Herod and go to work for him, perhaps unaware that they're helping the state conduct mass murder. Eventually, they discover the little threat called Jesus and dutifully inform their boss. So, are these wise guys naive or merely stupid? Regardless, their news frightens Herod and makes him even more paranoid than normal, like anyone with a lot to lose. He sees conspiracies everywhere, distrusts his wise guys for what they know, and tries to have them arrested. And when that fails, he then goes after baby Jesus, using the information so conveniently provided by the wise men. But Jesus and his family have been tipped off, and they skedaddle off to a safe house. Frustrated twice, King Herod has to save face, and so like any ruler feeling his power slipping, he launches a war. A war against little children. The murder of every child in the area who is under two years old. But this inept scattergun approach fails to hit Jesus. Well, despite the tragedy of the moment, one can almost hear the gospel writer chuckling up his sleeve, for Herod's intended target has slipped from his grasp, making the king look quite ridiculous. The vaunted power of the state is not as absolute as we might think. Those of us in the Canadian King Herod's crosshairs have had that revelation shown to us routinely, especially whenever we've confronted the churches that murdered Maisie Shaw and so many like her. Like the hero in a Greek tragedy, survivors to a slaughter are a subversive random element that bloody rulers didn't figure on. Because survivors remember the fallen and they keep alive the truth of what killed them by calling it out loudly and publicly. That's the power of mourning, of letting the voice of the dead shout unceasingly through us. That's why it makes people so uncomfortable. It's why the disruptive cries of a handful of us force Canadian church and state killers to admit some of their crime when they wanted nothing other than to bury it forever, as they're doing now with more national cover-ups and banal rewritings of the history of their extermination of Native children. This first Christmas story in Matthew ends with the same ambiguity known by our campaign to confront our homegrown holocaust. A blood-soaked Herod remains officially, though more unsteadily, in the saddle, while a few unsilenced mourners and survivors endure, awaiting their moment. As with Jesus, the killing has been not an ending, but the start of something unexpected by everyone, a new presence in the world that threatens to overturn the entire sick arrangement of rulers and ruled, something Jesus Yeshua called the kingdom of heaven. Well, a few years after his attempted murder by Herod, Jesus stood up in the Nazareth synagogue in his hometown and announced that he was launching a revolution that would bring sight to the blind and good news to the poor. He proclaimed that all debts were canceled, all land was returned to the original owners, and all prisoners were set free. What he was doing by that was he was enacting what's known as the Jubilee Laws, which brought down rulers and the rich and raised up the poor and and made all people equal. The prosperous Nazareth parishioners didn't like this leveling coming from God, and so they responded to Jesus' words in outrage and tried to throw him off a cliff. But once again, wise to their plans, he eluded his killers. Whenever I shared this revolutionary gospel message from my pulpit, it tended to alarm or confuse my wealthy parishioners but it brought a smile of relief and amusement to the street people or the aboriginals in our pews. Middle-class Christians generally can't relate to the man Jesus, except as an abstract 
cult figure. They tend to be left in cold by the human Jesus and by any equating of him with rebellion or the underclass, even though the Bible is full of such references. But poor and outcast people quickly identify with Jesus as one like them, who by their existence challenge and upset all the cozy arrangements. We had no better example of that in our than in our movement of mostly homeless native people that occupied churches and exposed the lie of a blood-soaked Christianity. The affluent pew-sitters and those that run the abattoir churches have a reason to be worried by Jesus' message when it is shorn of its festive feel-good Christmas fluff. For that incendiary purpose is contained in the very words of today's Bethlehem story from Matthew. When Jesus' family is given a warning to flee from Herod's killers, the Greek word for warning is kremazo, which means to be admonished by God and given a new purpose and name. In other words, you're not only yanked to your feet suddenly, but garbed in a new identity to allow you to escape. Call it divine camouflage, but it isn't there simply to allow you to survive. It's brought in to give a new reason for your life. And in the same way, the Greek word for flee is fuego. In Greek and Latin, it means to fly away and to reject something, like the way you shun evil by departing from it. And so the fleeing isn't an act of fear. It's when we separate ourselves from something that's wrong. We go into exile from everything we know, and that is a first spiritual act that starts changing us according to a higher aim. Because throughout our many myths and legends, the hero figure leaves his people to go into foreign lands and discover his true strength in order to return to overturn. And because of that, the boot always comes down. The emperor strikes back, state terror slays the innocent, but the seed of a revolution has been sown. Nevertheless, the question remains, and it hovers like an accusing finger over the neighborhoods of slaughtered babies. From where does that evil of child killing come, and why did Christians commit it so habitually? In this gospel passage from Matthew, when the babies are murdered, the Greek word used to describe the killing is anahero, which means to steal and then exterminate, the way animals are bound up and then ritually slaughtered. The same word is used to describe sacrificing an animal or a child, a blood ritual going back millennia, where people believe they were purified by killing the pure and the innocent. The Hebrew word kadesh means two things at the same time. It means to sanctify and to sacrifice. In other words, we make something holy by murdering it. And there you have it, the source of the crime. Because right there, wired into the language and thought of Judeo-Christianity is the ancient tribal belief that you cannot worship God and be made pure without ritually murdering the best, the purest, and the most innocent among us. Why else were the firstborn children of the Canaanites thrown into the fire pit of their insatiable god Moloch? Why was God's own firstborn son Jesus sacrificed on a cross? And why today are the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches of Canada that kill generations of children still allowed to legally operate and face no consequences for their mass murder? And what's even more bizarre, why did the people in those churches feel fine about it? Because consciously or not, innocent blood is still believed to be our key to worldly power and salvation. Well, what do you do in the face of this inherent and institutionalized evil that in practice doesn't see anything wrong with it? Well, what you do is you take Jesus' words seriously as a means to action, because those words are not meant to be politely listened to for an hour on Sundays. They are meant to cause an eruption in the listener, an inner turmoil that starts snapping the chains of complicity with official wrongdoing that have been forged on us since our birth. 
Without that inner disruptive explosion, our hearts will remain unmoved by the mass murder of children and will continue to be willing accomplices of the butchers garbed in robes of church and state. Of course, these are all just words. And all the correct words spoken over the years about child killings and baby trafficking and Christian genocide have not stopped the killer's knives. The crime continues unabated today because of who we are. It's in our nature to be part of this killing. But being hunted by assassins and forced to flee into exile can help us unlearn who we are and become someone else. And then maybe we'll start placing our bodies between the innocents and the killers who come for them. Maybe then we'll become fit to be part of that divine revolution called the kingdom of heaven and help overthrow the blood-soaked rulers and their commanding prince of darkness so that a new creation can dawn. Perhaps it took Jesus many years to discover that purpose, but he was set on his course at the moment of his birth, as were any of us who were chosen to carry this burden. The only certainty we have is that we have no home except the one that lies ahead in the new world, on the other side of the great cleansing fire. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Stand by for more. Good evening, I'm Kevin Annett, and tonight I'm going to give you a lecture that I was to present to the Oxford Union, which is the oldest debating society in the world. In April 2016, I was invited to come there in Oxford University in England and debate a cleric of the Catholic Church over the issue. Uh, Funnily enough, the topic was, is there any good in the Roman Catholic Church? Well, as so often happens on these occasions, the invitation to me was unexplainably withdrawn about two weeks before the event, and the debate between me and him never happened. So I thought it would be good to post online for the world to see exactly what I was going to say that night. Good evening. Let me begin by saying what a pleasant surprise it is to be able to join you all here tonight. The last time I tried to give a public talk in England, at a London rally to protest child trafficking by church and state, your privately run UK border agency saw fit to arrest, fingerprint, jail me, and then finally deport me from your country without giving a reason at all. So be that as it may, and it usually is, I especially want to thank you for having me here tonight, having the courage to have me here tonight. Tonight's topic for debate is framed rather tellingly. Is there any good in the Roman Catholic Church? And assumingly by that is meant its holding company, the Vatican Incorporated. While the very wording of the subject is interesting because it implies that no, there isn't any good at all, let's search for some. Of course, trying to locate integrity in a corporation is like looking for love in a brothel. So perhaps the question of tonight's debate's already been answered. My job's done, we can all go home. In any event, the title of the main event tonight is a bit confusing, beginning with the term good, which is, after all, a completely relative and morally ambiguous term. The Spanish conquistadors and their slaughter-blessing Catholic priests thought that they were doing good when they wiped out millions of non-Catholic people for their own good. The Vatican's Inquisition that barbecued and tortured to death Christians who disagreed with Rome was officially entitled an auto de fe, which means act of faith. Even the present so-called liberal Pope Francis, Jorge Bagaglio, speaks of the goodness and zeal of the Franciscan missionaries who worked to death thousands of Aboriginal men, women, and children on Catholic slave plantations in California. 
well, some things never change. Bergoglio also recently pardoned some 10,000 of his own child-raping priests, no doubt in the same spirit of doing good, at least good for his own institution. Human beings, especially when goaded on and justified by religion, always adorn their crimes in a halo of goodness. I've had personal experience of what I speak about. For over 20 years in Canada, I've lived and worked and documented the, alongside these folks who have lived through the story, the reality of genocide in Canada, perpetrated mostly by Catholic-run Indian residential schools, where over 60,000 children died. Half of these children never came back because of, at the hands of the priests and nuns, they were ritually tortured, routinely starved, trafficked, experimented upon, flogged, gang-raped, and killed en masse with smallpox and tuberculosis. Not one Catholic priest has ever gone to trial for any of these crimes, nor will they. These killers are above the law as it stands now. And having had the misfortune of speaking with enough of these scum, I know that these complicit clergy are still convinced that they were only trying to do good to the little brown savages by killing their bodies to save their souls, to quote their buddy Thomas Aquinas, one of the founding theologians of the Catholic Church. So perhaps what we need to do is redefine the term good in a better way, using this simple definition. To do good means to do no harm to others and to let them be themselves. Of course, under that definition, you immediately disqualify the, and condemn the Roman Catholic Church, which has killed more people than any institution in human history. The Church of Rome's body count is well over 50 million corpses, ever since it was made a legal corporation by the Emperor Constantine in the year 317. All right, all right, that may all be true, sputtered the defenders of Rome. So nobody's perfect. But look at all the charitable works the Church does all the time. Isn't that good? Well, in that sense, perhaps tonight's topic for debate should have been entitled instead, Was There Any Good in Pablo Escobar, the head of the criminal syndicate known as the Medellin Drug Cartel? Because Pablo engaged in lots of charitable good works for the poor folks of Colombia. Just like the Roman Catholic Church, of which he was a dues-paying member, Pablo used his ill-gotten loot to build shelters for the homeless, playgrounds for some slum kids, and soup kitchens for the hungry. Of course, that charitable money was covered in blood and paid for by the early deaths from drug addiction of the very same people he was helping, but still, he was doing some good, wasn't he? Now, my analogy between Pablo Escobar and the Vatican is more than fitting, since not only are they members of the same club, but also the Vatican Bank is heavily invested in the international drug cartels as well as the arms and human trafficking industries that go along with it. GMO companies, Big Pharma, the biggest small arms company in the world, Beretta Limited, even dozens of online internet porn companies, all of these 100% Vatican investments pay for the goodies doled out to those deserving poor people who kiss the claw that feeds them. But let's take on directly the suggestion that the Roman Catholic Church, as the world's richest and least accountable corporation, plays a major role in providing charitable sustenance to the world's needy. Let's ask, what percentage of the church's annual revenue actually goes towards charitable works? Well, it's an important question, not only for the debate tonight, but because the only legal basis for the church to be exempt from paying taxes under the law of nations is that they must devote all, not some, but all, of their collected revenue for either the advancement of religion or charitable works. Well, right there, you cannot go to the Roman Catholic Church unless someone wants to explain what money laundering for the mafia, 
buying cruise missiles for third world dictators, or issuing routine bribes to politicians and governments all over the world have to do with either religion or charity? What percentage of the Catholic Church's revenue goes towards charity? Actually, less than 1%, at least in America. For, tellingly, that's the only country in the world where the Church consistently publishes any of its financial records. After all, the Vatican is a closed, self-governing, totally unaccountable body, like any secret criminal society. But that inconvenient, lingering notion of a separation of Church and State found in the American Constitution requires that even the Catholic Church has to create an appearance of transparency. And so, according to the U.S. government, in the year 2013, the Roman Catholic Church in America had a net revenue of $13.4 billion. And that's just in one country, where only about 15% of the world's Catholics live. By projection, the annual income of the Vatican must be in the hundreds of billions of dollars, not just from all those collection plates, from those saps, from its, but also from its massive global investment portfolio and its secret financial concordat agreements with over 100 governments that channel a regular percentage of your tax money into the Vatican Bank and all of its criminal behavior. But coming back to America, the one country where a light is shone on the murky underworld of Vatican finances, according to the same self-audit of the Catholic Church, of the $13.4 billion raked in during 2013, only 1.1% of it went to charity. But since half of that amount came from government grants to Catholic aid societies, in reality, a whopping 0.6% of the income went from the bank accounts into charities. But since those charities are mostly owned and operated by the church itself, it just means that one hand of the octopus is feeding the other. Quite brilliant, don't you think? One half of 1%, friends. The truth is that the Roman Catholic Church is not a force for charitable works. Just look at the books. It's, in fact, a huge criminal racket, a money-sucking corporation that kept afloat by every taxpayer in the world. Okay, so let's turn to the other basis for the church not paying a dime of taxes, the advancement of religion. What percentage of its time and money goes towards advancing its particular, and I might say extremely violent, religious creed? Less than 10%. That's the time each week a priest spends conducting prayers, masses, or catechism classes, according to the church itself, according to a statement from the Vatican's governing College of Cardinals, who in 2014 issued an internal report concerning the training and ordination of its priests. The main job of the clergy, according to the cardinals, is the material and social upkeep of the church, guarding the building, the safeguard of its traditions and operations, and the expansion of its income and membership. Like in any big corporation, somebody somewhere tell me where God, let alone Jesus Christ, enters into that whole mess. Okay, strike two. In case you didn't know, that's a baseball term. I don't play cricket. The third and final strike against the Roman Catholic Church, and you've got to watch out that for that term because the word Catholic means universal, which it does not. The final strike against the Catholic Church lies in its real and not imagined nature. Once its enormous pretense and lie is pulled back and we see it for what it is historically and today. But to do so and to pierce the mental fog surrounding the Vatican Incorporated, we have to realize that the papacy is not a Christian church at all. On the contrary, it is in every respect a cult of emperor worship derived from late 3rd century Rome, not from the historic Jesus, not even from the early Christian church. 
This fact is crucial if we were to deal with the mental confusion of many people, atheists included, who ponder helplessly, but how can a body that preaches about the love of Jesus cause mass murder, genocide, and institutionalized child rape? Of course, the simple answer to that is that it's always the worst child rapist in town who has the most sterling reputation. The latter is needed as a cloak by any crook. The bigger the felony, the sweeter the coating. Talk, my friends, is easy, especially from a pulpit. But let's not forget what Jesus himself warned. Quote, Many false prophets will come in my name and say, I am the Christ. But do not be fooled. By their works you shall know them. Bingo. By their works you shall know them. Well, we can see the works of the papacy all too well. Conquest, brutality, just wars, genocide, inquisition, and the crushing of the human spirit. And it all began when the Roman emperors Aurelian and Constantine created the Roman Catholic Church on the murdered bones of the early Christian Church. The Church was an extension and continuation of that other big killing machine called the Roman Empire. Proof of this, you don't have to look any further than the Pope's official title, which is Pontifex Maximus, which in Latin means the Great Bridge. Between guess where? Heaven and Earth. That was the Latin title of the emperors of Rome starting with Aurelian in the year 275, who also assumed the title Dies et Dominus, means God and Master. One man who's become God. Well, first that was the emperor, but now today to a Catholic, it's the Pope. Christ is no longer the link to God, but a man is, elected and elevated blasphemously over humanity, even over God, by other old men in funny hats. Well, not surprisingly, every newly elected pope is also given the title Vicari Christi, which is even more blatant. In Latin, it means the replacement of Christ, the one who replaces Christ. In black and white, it's right there. Catholicism, papism, is the replacement of Christianity, an empire of conquest and wealth relying on the means of the world and not the way of Christ. Just look at the body count. And listen to these admissions of guilt, right from the horse's mouth, or I should say ass, statements from various popes down the centuries that have never been contradicted or repudiated by any of their successors. Pope Boniface, in 1302, We declare it is necessary for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Pope Leo, in 1520, The Pope is Christ himself on earth. Pope Pius, in 1929, Fascism is simply the doctrines of our faith made the law and government. Pope John in 1962, No man may enter into Christ unless he be led there by the sovereign pontiff. Pope John Paul in 1996, Have no fear when men call me Christ on earth, for I am he. Pope Benedict in 2008, You need not go to Christ for salvation. Come to me. Pope Francis in 2016, Christ made himself sin, made himself the devil, that's new, for our salvation. Only the church and its magisterium can claim holy infallibility. Have you had enough? I know I have. Well, is it any wonder that such a power-obsessed, megalomaniac religion makes itself unaccountable, sees nothing with its crimes, and uses the image and words of Christ himself to delude and soak its millions of dupe followers to believe that a bit of a communion wafer or a papal blessing or the right amount of cash delivered into church coffers will buy their way into heaven, as if one can. Well, unfortunately, I saw it for myself when I was last in Rome in 2011. 
right there in the Vatican Museum. A display board for buying indulgences, just like out of Martin Luther's day. Special papal blessings cost you only 150 euros. The more you spend, the closer you get to heaven. Although, be warned, apparently, according to the sign, apparently God prefers credit cards to cash. How right when Pope Leo in 1520 said, This myth of Christ has served us well. Well, the most dangerous group in the world is a super wealthy cult that sees itself as God, superior to everyone, and therefore justifying and doing whatever is needed to protect itself and rule the world. A cult, in other words, like the Church of Rome. What other, what other being than a cult can operate according to a criminal policy like Crimen Solicitanus, which has been binding on all Catholics since the year 1929? That policy states that whenever a child is raped or otherwise harmed by a priest, the police are not to be told, the victim is to be silenced, and if anyone speaks of this, they are excommunicated, thrown into hell for snitching on a rapist. Clearly, the god of Rome, like the Mafia, cannot tolerate a snitch. Better instead to operate under a global criminal conspiracy to aid and abet child rapists and killers than to cost the church a lawsuit or save a child's life. Heaven forbid. And yet, despite all of this criminal arrangement, the world keeps wondering why there's so much child rape within the Church of Rome. Are we all that blind? Do we really think a lion isn't going to eat a gazelle? Well, John Acton, a British politician, said, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was referring to the Church of Rome when he made that statement, something conveniently left out of the history books. The Church of Rome is absolutely corrupt, but it also corrupts whoever is near to it, like all who attend it, who fund it, who associate with it, or rent its halls, or smile on its policies, or look the other way at all its public relations gestures. All who do so partake in that corruption. And under the law of God and mankind, those human accessories are equally guilty of all its crimes. The only good that can be said to come out of this most violent, corrupt, and anti-Christ body in history is how its evil awakens people to the need for a return to the simple words, witness, and spirit of Jesus himself, a spirit that has always been the chief adversary of the Church of Rome. Jesus founded a community of called-out people, a remnant not of this world, a congregation, not a church. Nowhere did Jesus speak of popes, of bishops, of rituals and ceremonies by which someone would mediate him and God to others. He said that the kingdom of heaven lay inside each of us, not outside in a communion wafer or a religious ritual. That inner kingdom of Christ alone is the guide of all true Christians who must come out from and be separate from all these vile, false and violent churches that deny God in practice and kill children in practice. And that's the task of any deluded soul still caught in the fatal grip of Rome and its blasphemous illusions and depravities. As America's founding father said, we hold this truth to be self-evident. And one of those men, the second U.S. president, John Adams, said, quote, a free government and the Roman Catholic religion can never exist together in any nation or country. Liberty and popery are opposed. Unquote. The nature of an ancient corporate evil like the Church of Rome does not change over time. It simply alters its appearance because it comes out of the dark ruler of this world, the one whom Jesus said, He is a lie from the beginning, for he is the father of lies. Satan. It's a good thing to free ourselves from a lie as huge as Roman Catholicism and as criminal 
As freeborn men and women, we are made for the truth, and when we recognize it, our hearts and our minds breathe freely and we return to our natural sense of liberty and independence. From that place of freedom, we are empowered to take action to stop criminals in every high place, whether they be popes or presidents or prime ministers. For we, the people, are the source of all sovereignty, of government, of law, and of religion. We can and must stop and arrest and confine child-raping priests when the police and courts refuse to do so. We can and must shut down the churches that traffic children and have hidden their crimes over centuries, like the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church of England, the United Church of Canada, all of these criminal bodies. For the life of one child is more sacred than all the fanfare and rituals of any church anywhere. Well, Jesus had his own prescription for child killers. He said, Whoever would harm one of these innocent ones should have a millstone placed around his neck and be thrown into the sea. Well, I wonder what Jesus would say about an entire institution that mocks God, murders with impunity, rapes and murders children, and protects those who do so. Is there a millstone that is big enough to sink such an institution? Yes, there is. It is we the people. I thank you.